Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. While working on a new murder case, Detective Inspector Oliver Wilson receives a number of anonymous gifts. The packages are sending him a message. He just can't figure out what they're trying to say. Nigel Bird's Ain't That a Kick in the Head is an explosive must-read follow-up to Let It Snow and My Funny Valentine. Be sure to order your copy today. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own, but others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know and love today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. As you just found out, Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. Special note, all four of our dogs are running around our studio right now. We may have to pause for a canine accommodation, but rest assured, we will be right back. This is season three, Enter the Detective. This season contains adaptations of the first cases for detectives. Some will be characters from book, screen, and stage. Others will be lesser known, but with great stories, we hope you give a try. This is episode eight, and it's about not doing well with sharing. This is Thorndike and the Red Thumb Mark, an adaptation of the Red Thumb Mark by R. Austin Freeman. Well, Jack, here we are. We have finally reached into the 1900s. We are in 1907, and this is our first medical mystery. Our detective is Dr. John Evelyn Thorndike. He worked in the forensic field before it was even called the forensic field. And our narrator is Dr. Christopher Jervis, a medical doctor and a new assistant to Thorndike. This story is one of our first to integrate what we would call modern technology into detecting. So let's open up by talking about fingerprinting and photography. So many ancient cultures recognized the difference in fingerprints, but it wasn't until the 1800s that we began describing them. Building on the work of Herman Welker, Henry Fraud, and William James Herschel, Sir Francis Galton suggested the first system for classifying fingerprints based on common elements. His work, in turn, was used by Sir Edward R. Henry and Juan Vutic to develop classification systems. Henry's approach was adopted by Scotland Yard in the early 1900s, like literally right at the time the story was written, and was widely adopted across English-speaking countries. It's probably pronounced Vudicic. From Argentina, published his system in the same time frame, and it's been widely adopted across Spanish-speaking countries. Some really cool references are in the show notes if you are looking for a way to get down a rabbit hole today. Now, the evolution of photography is harder to consolidate as there's a lot of science and physics involved. Most sources traced its roots back to the decades before Christ and the photo obscuro boxes. It was noticed that when light passed through a small hole in the box, the image on the opposite side was inverted. It's very much the same way our eyes work, which is really cool. In the 1700s, people began to recognize that certain materials, especially those involving certain bacteria, were light sensitive. So when paper was treated and then exposed to a concentrated light through a lens, that image was captured on the paper. 
The science of focus, exposure, and capture evolved throughout the 1800s. Multiple sites placed the first true photograph in the mid-1830s. The image took nearly eight hours to capture and was still very grainy. By the mid-1800s, technology had improved to the point that photos were being used to document social conditions and political events. So think about the photos that exist from the American Civil War. By the time our story today was published in 1907, the Kodak Company existed and technology had progressed into the idea of moving pictures. There are several sources in the show notes and I promise you it really is a fascinating read. All right, Jack, tell us about our author today. Hey. So, all right, today, uh, this R. Austin Freeman, his name is Richard. So, you know, Dick was a doctor and a surgeon. He was born in uh, 1862 in London's Soho district. And, you know, uh, yeah, and he lived a pretty colorful life. According to Wikipedia, uh, he was a doctor, a naturalist, and a surveyor. I'm not sure what a naturalist is. That's somebody who runs ah, around naked. I actually do know what a naturalist is. What is it? Because uh, in my video game, you can be one. It's somebody who studies plants. Oh, uh, isn't that a botanist? Uh, not only plants, but also animals. Basically, nature. And they respect it. And it's like their passion. Oh. So, like, that's cool. Anyway, I'm sure there's more description than just that that I'm just not caring enough to think about. After med school, he worked as a hospital physician for a year before joining the Colonies Service, which is part of the British government that oversaw the various colonies and was being shipped out to Africa. Uh, there, he was on the front lines of an epidemic of blackwater fever. I think we have a lot more respect when we read something now that says he was on the front lines of an epidemic. When <laughs> just understanding it now. Yeah, but no. Anyway, <laughs> there he was. I already read that. Uh, this was a complication of what? Malaria? Where yeah, the, from malaria. Where the red blood cells burst and cause all kinds of problems. In 1888, he went on an expedition as the medical officer. Uh, the expedition was a failure and Freeman came down with malaria and black water fever. He survived it, going home in 91, uh, but without a pension. He worked as a doctor until 1905 when his health forced him to quit and he began writing full-time. Sucks to suck. The end of the 1800s and the early 1900s saw the invention of many things we consider commonplace here today from the websites Wikipedia and Toast Time. Toast Time. Wikipedia and Toast Time. We are quite the, uh, you know, we use very reliable resources here. Uh, here it's only so much time in a day. <laughs> Here are a few of our favorite inventions. In 1867, the typewriter. That's one that has come and gone. I'm not reading these. Uh, in 1868, traffic light. In 1879, electric light bulb. How did they invite oh. the electric <laughs> traffic light or the traffic light before they had light bulbs? Maybe it was just a dude. Candles? Uh, 1888. <laughs> what? Candles? Candle lit traffic lights. I don't know. Like turn them off and on? I don't know, but it truly baffles me. How do you invent a traffic light before you invent a light bulb? I don't know. If it was so curious, maybe you would have Googled it. Or um. I apologize. Searched it up. You can't can't use brand names. Um, 1888 Kodak camera. So the same year, he went and got like his medical officer expedition. They were like, Kodak can make p 
pictures. Anyway, 1895 Radio and Volleyball. Why are those the... Oh, the volleyball. They created the volleyball in 1895. Okay. Uh, 1898, semi-trucks. Uh, 1900s, rechargeable battery and the thumbtack. I had no idea the rechargeable battery was that old of a technology. I thought it was like a 1990s invention. The thumbtack? The thumbtack. That was just so silly. Like, it really took till 1900 for somebody to develop... A thumbtack when we've had nails for like hundreds and hundreds of years. 1901 electric vacuum cleaner. 1901 the Weherless oh, telegraph. 1902 air conditioning. Did not know air conditioning was that old. Air conditioning is <laughs> a pollutant. Uh, I'm not reading that one. 1907 paper towels. 1910, the toaster, my favorite kind of bath bomb. 1913, electric refrigerator. And if you must care to know, in 1904, they created the banana split. I don't know why that had to be included in here, but all right. Because it was interesting. Again, like, why does something, I don't know, it just was caught my attention. Like, some of these things, they mix this uber high-end technology with the most ordinary things. Like, <laughs> I would think a banana split would have to be invented. Well, I think we are nearly ready to begin our story. So while Jack fusses with our dogs, resets his microphone, and warms his fingers up, oh, here comes another dog for you, Jack. I'll explain why we're doing adaptations of these stories instead of performing them as they were written. Uh, two main reasons. The language from the earliest mysteries can be hard. The Cadence is different, and oh my lord, they really like their commas. Um, but the second is that the style and length were made for reading, not for listening. So with these adaptations, we keep the story while preserving the narrative, but we package it for a little easier digestion. And so we're ready for Thorndike and the Red Thumb Mark. Chapter 1, The Unexpected Guest Being a man of modern medicine, I do not believe in fate or luck, and yet I can only call it coincidence that I was in the courtyard at the same moment as an old friend from med school. Where I had time, he was in a hurry. So I was invited to dinner to catch up on the paths our lives had taken. John Evelyn Thorndike was a doctor, but he had not taken the traditional path of a primary caregiver. He became attached to the medical school as a lecturer, eventually taking the post of Medico Juris, medical law. It's not as simple as it sounds, Thorndike said. I had to educate myself on the ways of the courts, as well as further my understanding of the mechanics of death. I am frequently called to testify in court. Now, it seems to be a rather standard business, but at the start, it was a lot of reading and experimenting. Thorndike had aged gracefully. He was by no means old. Thorndike matured, though, from the young, idealistic med student into a man who embodied independent authority. He had a handsome face with a strong jaw and thoughtful eyes. While listening, he gave the speaker the impression that he considered every word important. Thorndike lived in a townhome in a part of London saturated with legal pursuits. He had a man, Poulton, who was both a superb butler and an excellent cook. Having finished dinner, we were relaxing in the library with cigars and drinks, and a couple dogs. Now that you know the eight years of my life, 
Thorndyke said. What's been keeping Dr. Christopher Jervis busy? It was the part of the conversation I'd been dreading, but my friend's manner put me at ease. Not as much as I should like, to be honest. Shortly after finishing school, my financial situation took an unexpected sour turn. I was not able to establish a practice of my own and have resorted to playing second fiddle to others. It's more near to a gypsy's life than a doctor's, I said, laughing at the joke of my career. Oh, come now, he said. It can't be all that bad. I swirled my glass, watching the firelight glint off the moving amber. I enjoy serving people I did and putting into action all of our learning. I should say there isn't anything I haven't seen. Though my hands have been busy, my pockets are still light. In fact, my last appointment ended a week ago. I was in the area calling on a fellow rumored to be near the end of his practice, seeing if he might need some help. What's the fellow's name, Thorndyke asked. Anyone I know? Before I could answer, Poulton opened the heavy oak doors. Two gentlemen to see you, doctor. They said it's urgent. Thorndyke sighed deeply, giving the impression that he frequently had callers with urgent natures. I suppose we should hear them out, Thorndyke said before finishing his drink. Show them in. A moment later, Poulton re-entered, followed by two gentlemen. Dr. Thorndyke, the taller said, thank you for seeing us. Our matter is urgent or we would have waited until tomorrow. Thorndyke rose, his face bright with recognition. Not at all, Lolly, come in. This is my associate, Dr. Jervis. Jervis, this is Mr. Lolly, an advocate. Lolly bowed in greeting. May I introduce Mr. Reuben Hornby, my client? Hornby was young, mid-twenties at most. He generally had an air of wealth and vigor, except for the weariness in his eyes. Thank you for seeing us, doctors. I rose and made polite excuses. Thorndyke, I'll leave you to consult in private. No, Jervis, stay, Thorndyke said, moving to block my path. Please don't leave on my account, Lolly said. What we talk about tonight will be in all the papers tomorrow. It may even be to our benefit to have another medical mind on our problem. Quickly, we were seated, and Poulton was on the task of refreshments for the unexpected guests. Lolly did not wait for polite inquiries to begin his story. Reuben works for his uncle, John Hornby, in a metals exchange business. Hornby Precious Metals verifies and values gold, silver, and the like. At times, the senior Mr. Hornby acts as an agent to other businessmen, moving their commodities through England. One week ago, Reuben was sent to the dock to collect a package that Hornby was receiving and then forwarding on, on to another on behalf of its owner. Normally, the package would have been taken to a bank and stored in a vault, but the ship arrived too late in the day. As a result, Reuben took the package to the office and delivered it to his uncle. His uncle noted the receipt on the sheet of paper from his desk and locked the package and the paper in his own safe. When the safe was open the next morning, the package was gone. Thorndyke lit the end of a chair. The package of valuable. The package was valuable, of course. Lolly nodded. The diamonds were valued at 50,000 pounds. A tidy sum, Thorndyke said. Who do they suspect? Me, Reuben answered. But I didn't do it. They always say they didn't do it. Chapter 2. Irrefutable Evidence You see, Thorndyke, Lolly continued, when the safe was opened, the receipt John Hornby wrote was still inside. It was on the bottom now, face down. When it was turned over, a thumbprint was on the front. It was very distinct, and it was in blood. Thorndyke cocked his head. 
blood, you say? And it was distinct? You could see the ridges and swirls and such? Oh yes, Lolly said. It was all very clear and, in fact, still a bit wet. Scotland Yard took it as evidence, but the print did not match any of the samples they had. Of course, they wanted samples from Mr. Hornby, Reuben, and his cousin Walter, who also works at the business, but the elder refused. His nephews are his closest sons. He outright declined to put them through such an accusation. We were willing, Reuben said quickly. Walter and I discussed it with Uncle. We knew neither of us had done this and were willing to be fingerprinted to put it to an end. I leaned forward, curious how the dots connected. But then, why did the police suspect you, I asked. My aunt, Reuben, said, Oh, she's a dear old thing, and it's tearing her up to think that she's responsible for my arrest. You see, she has a thumbograph. Do you know what that is? No, said Thorndyke. Is it a photograph? Not at all, he said. It's a small album that is used to collect thumbprints of family and friends. My aunt had it at a house party, and we had a good laugh filling it in. The police came by when my uncle was out and spoke to my aunt. He hesitated. She is sweet. There's none kinder, but... Well, she handed over. You see, she was certain it would vindicate both of us. Your print matched, Thorndyke said. It did, Lolly said. They arrested Reuben the next day and took another set of prints. He is out on bail. The hearing is in three days. We've come to ask you to take the case. We are in need of an expert who can refute the finding of a bloody print inside of a locked safe. I see, Thorndyke said. You want me to testify that the thumbprint is not conclusive evidence? It can't be conclusive, Reuben said, because I didn't do this. I took a walk in the evening, then went home to bed and directly to the office in the morning. I haven't been cut. He stretched out his arms, tugging up his sleeves. I haven't bled in a long time. Thorndike noted as he surveyed the unblemished skin. Who had the key to the safe? The senior, Mr. Hornby, Lolly said. There are times when the keys were entrusted to Reuben or Walter, but that night, Mr. Hornby had them in his possession from the time he locked the safe until the time he unlocked it. He didn't want it investigated. The insurance company will cover the loss. He has nothing to gain by the investigation, arrest, or prosecution. Reuben took a deep breath. Unfortunately for me, Scotland Yard feels that they have enough to do what they need to do without my uncle's blessing. What do you think, doctor? Thorndike took his time to answer. No evidence is infallible. It all requires collaboration. I will look into the matter and give you my decision tomorrow. Where is the note from the safe and the thumbograph? Scotland Yard has the note, Lolly said. The thumbograph was returned to Mrs. Hornby, but it will be entered into evidence, I expect. Yes, I expect it will. I'll need to take your fingerprints myself if you have no objection. Thorndike then said, Poulton in motion. We went upstairs to the laboratory I'd yet to see. Poulton began to lay out the necessary implements and Thorndike prepared ink and paper. With the precision of a craftsman, he took imprints from all 10 fingers with extra images of his thumbs. That should do, he said. Was anything else taken from the safe? Lolly shook his head. The office and safe were completely intact. Nothing was touched but the diamonds. We appreciate anything you can do. He rose then, turning to his client. May I have a private word with the doctor? Of course, Reuben gave a small bow. Doctors, thank you for your time. He left then to join awaiting Poulton. Is there a problem, Lolly? Thorndike asked. 
I'm afraid this case is impossible, he said. I've advised Reuben to plead guilty and beg for mercy. He's refusing. He is as stubborn as he is guilty. I brought him to you at his request in service to my client, but this is a fool's errand. Oh, I don't know, Thorndike said. Give Jervis and I a day to look into matters. That should be enough to separate the fools from the thieves. Chapter 3, The Unexpected Advocate I returned to Thorndike's the next day, more excited than I had been in years. After Lolly and Hornby left the last night, Thorndike offered me a position assisting him. I found him in his library, his nose buried in a book. On the table next to him was the most sophisticated camera I have ever seen. Poulton entered the room and went directly to the camera and began to work studiously. There was more to Poulton than his efficient butler facade. Good morning, Jervis. Thorndike pushed his book across the table. How much do you know about fingerprints? I'm afraid I'm somewhat limited in that area, I said. I know there have been advances in fingerprints as credible evidence in the investigation of crimes. Very true, Thorndike said. Scotland Yard has recently established a department dedicated to fingerprints. The combination of squirrels and ridges have been established as having such low statistical probability of occurring in two people that they are considered positive identification. I accepted his statement as truth. This was Thorndike's field of expertise, not mine. Then Reuben Hornsby is guilty, I asked. Not necessarily, Thorndike said. All evidence needs to be corrob corroborated. What motivation does Reuben have? What opportunity? The thumbprint is damning, but it also raises questions. How did it get there, I said, speaking into the opportunity. And when was it created? Reuben's hands were not cut, so where did the blood come from? And if it wasn't his, then whose was it? Thorndike grinned and gave me an, an approving nod. All excellent questions, he said. Then the front doorbell rang. Poulton lifted his head, a dog scenting a mailman, and quickly left the room. Drat, said Thorndyke. He had the look of a man ready to make himself scarce. Poulton reappeared, a lady in his wake. Miss Juliet Gibson. Thorndyke and I rose. The displeasure of interruption had been wiped off Thorndyke's face, replaced with one of professional courtesy. For myself, this was an interruption I could welcome. The lady that entered had a sweet face with shining chestnut-colored hair. Her large brown eyes were so full and a sadness that tugged at my heartstrings. Dr. Thorndike, thank you for seeing me. She held out her hand to shake with Thorndike, an unusual entry and one that said that she was pure to Thorndike. Certainly, he said. This is my associate, Dr. Christopher Jervis. What can we do for you? He waved her to a wide couch. I've come about Reuben Hornby, she said, sinking onto the cushion. I understand you've agreed to undertake his case. I have come to say that Reuben did not steal the diamonds. It's not in his character. Allow me to tell my story. I was hired by Mrs. Hornby as a companion when I was 14. She took pity on an orphan and treated me more like an adopted daughter. The Hornbys do not have children of their own. They are very close to their nephews and extended their generosity to me. A few years ago, I came into an inheritance that allowed me to be independent, but as they'd become my family, I asked to stay. I have known Reuben and Walter for eight years. They were only a few months apart, but couldn't be more different. Reuben has never had an interest in money and the things he can buy with it. He's an intellectual, spending his free time attending lectures. 
Walter's always been the ambitious one. Business is both his profession and his hobby. So you see, it makes no sense that Reuben stole the diamonds. I'm very grateful you've come, Thorndyke said. Your knowledge of the players may be invaluable if you're open to answering some impertinent questions. She sat taller, beaming. I will answer any question if it means finding the truth. Excellent, Thorndyke said. Please tell me, is there a romantic interest between you and Reuben? She shook her head. We're good friends. If there's any romantic interest, it's from Walter, but I don't return it. I think Walter likes me well enough, but I believe his true interest is in my inheritance. I prefer a husband whose primary interest is in my person. Juliet Gibson was a very definition of a desirable woman. I could not imagine a man not being interested in her person. Thank you for your candidness, Thorndyke said. I understand Mr. John Hornby maintained control over the key to the safe. Oh, yes, she said. Mr. Hornby is very particular. Mrs. Hornby teases that he is not a struggling businessman anymore. The key is on his person as long as he is in the city. Well, I'm sure he doesn't sleep with it, but he only trusts it to Walter or Reuben when he travels. I see, Thorndike said. Can you tell us about the thumbograph? She nodded again. It was a gift, one that saved a dreadful evening. We were in the country, entertaining guests with differing tastes, leaving nothing to talk about. Walter gave it to Mrs. Hornby. It all fascinated us, and we took turns having our fingerprints taken. Do you know where the thumbograph is currently, Thorndike asked? At the house, in the drawer in Mrs. Hornby's sitting room. She did not allow the police to take it. Thorndike asked a few more questions, going over the same information that Lolly and Reuben had shared. Finally, he thanked Mrs. Gibson for her initiative and did what he could to give her hope. Polton showed her out, then returned with their hats and coats. I have the plates we need with the magnifying lenses, he said, and I took the liberty of hailing a cab. Excellent, Polton. Thorndike put his hat on his head and tapped it down. Well, Jervis, it seems our chariot awaits. Chapter 4 Bloodproof The cab pulled up in front of an intimidating building that was Scotland Yard. I was the only one of our trio that was intimidated. Thorndike headed directly for the entrance, his gait that of a man on a mission. Poulton was in his wake, his slim frame strong under the burden of the camera cases. I hurried after the pair, not wanting to be left on the outside. The guard at the entrance recognized Thorndike and smiled broadly. Good day to you, Dr. Thorndike, Mr. Poulton. Come to take some photographs, have you? Thorndike returned the friendly smile. Yes, we have. I am in search of the thumbprint from the Hornby robbery. This is my associate, Dr. Jervis. Jervis, this is one of Scotland Yard's finest, Sergeant Todd. Good to know you, Todd said, rising from his post. The evidence is in with Robinson. Surprised he called you, to be honest. This one's pretty cut and dry. Thorndike followed the sergeant, Poulton and I following him. I'm afraid we're on opposite sides of the table this time. The defense has hired my services. Todd laughed. Oh, well, that's a shame for you. We're going to make you eat your hat on this one. He rapped twice on the door labeled Robinson and opened it under the enter command. Inspector, Dr. Thorndike and company here to see the Thornby thumb mark. Better watch yourself, sir. He's working for the enemy. Robinson was a dark-haired man in his 40s. His face displayed amusement at the sergeant's declaration. Is he now? What say you, Thorndike? 
Thorndike masterly threaded the needle of jovial and warning. Your sergeant is right about everything except who will be eating the hat. Robinson laughed. I see you've come prepared to photograph the evidence. Well, I would offer you one of our photos, but I know you would turn it down. Very well, do as you will. Todd will stay to help. Thorndike snorted. More like to make sure I don't pinch the evidence. That too, Robinson said, and left us to our work. I myself just waited for direction. First, Thorndike examined the print with the magnifying glass. He described each step as he executed it. He then handed the glass to me and I did my own inspection. The print was exceptionally clear. The squirrel lines were distinct. A solid line split the top of the print as if the original had had a cut or a scar. I took my time committing the print to memory, working until Thorndike signaled they were ready. I lifted my head to find the massive camera assembled. Polton was the master photographer, working under Thorndike's direction. The pair took no less than 12 images using all of the plates and lenses Polton had so carefully packed. The thumbprint was then returned to Todd's custody, and we retreated to the civilian side of the walls. What do you make of it, Thorndike? I asked. Thorndike shook his head. Fingerprints and blood are never as we just saw. Blood is too viscous. The print is never distinct. They're often smudged and indistinct. I have a book you can read on the subject. I intended to read that book cover to cover. Are you saying the red wasn't blood? It certainly wasn't ink. It is blood, Thorndike said, but blood that's been processed. I know two ways to render blood into a fluid that would make it capable of making such a print. I paused, mentally chewing on the idea of processed blood and the logic of why Reuben would go to such a length in a quest for diamonds. I could not come up with a single rational reason. Are you saying the print isn't Reuben's? I am not, Thorndike said. I suspect it is his print. We need to photograph the thumbograph. Pay a call on Miss Gibson, Jervis. Use your wiles to get me that book. Chapter 5, Proof Positive Juliet Gibson received me with the same open and upfront manner she displayed in Thorndike's rooms. She took my hands in hers. Have you brought news? Have you and Dr. Dorn Thorn Have you and Dr. Thorndike found anything to help Reuben? I squeezed her hands lightly, reassuringly. We're working on it. We need to see the thumbograph to inspect it and photograph Reuben's print. Do you think that's possible? Of course, anything to help. She turned to leave the room just as an older gentleman entered. Mr. Hornby, she said, may I present Dr. Jervis? He is working with Dr. Thorndike on Reuben's defense. Thornby was of average height, well-dressed, well-groomed, and well-fed. The air of success was tainted by dark marks under his eyes. I tell you with absolute certainty that Reuben did not do this, Dr. Jervis. I will tell you as I did Scotland Yard, I have no explanation as to how the thumbprint appeared on the receipt. It is a baffling mystery. One we're earnestly working on, I said, then seized the opportunity fate put in my path. I understand the key to the safe was under your control the entire time. Yes, he said. My wife, Juliet, and I had a quiet evening. The key was in my vest pocket from the time I locked the safe until I readied for bed. Then it went into the dish on my dresser, as it does every evening. When I dressed the next morning, it went back into my vest pocket. Reuben was not here last night, I asked. Walter? I wish they were. Then there would be no question, he said. The insurance company will cover the loss, certainly it has cost me in the eyes of my business associate and potentially my customers, but that's not important to me right now. 
It should be, said a younger voice. Not to worry, Uncle, you still have me. And I'm grateful for you, Walter, said the elder Hornby to our newcomer. Walter Hornby was a few inches taller than his uncle and carried the same air of success, albeit without the weight of distress. As much as I hate to say it out loud, it seems the crown's case against old Reuben is airtight. New at the game, I wasn't sure the role Thorndike would have wanted me to play. As such, I thought, what would Thorndike do? Every fact must be corroborated, I said, with motive and opportunity, the means to an end. The thumbprint seems to create a single answer, when in reality, it creates many questions. I just want it all to go away, the elder Hornby said. Reuben is living under a cloud, and his arraignment is the day after tomorrow. Juliet seemed to react to something in her sponsor's tone. Walter, why don't you take Mr. Hornby into the library for a brandy? I'll see to Dr. Jervis and be in soon. When we were alone again, Juliet came close, speaking nearly in a whisper. May I pay a visit tonight? I will bring the thumbograph. At the appointed time, Miss Gibson was shown into the middle was shown in with the middle-aged woman on her arm. Well, just look at all of this, Juliet. Why, I feel as I'm in the midst of a scientist about to make a grand discovery. I'm not a scientist, Thorndike said with a bow. Not by profession, Mrs. Hornby. I will admit it to tinkering a bit. Have you brought the thumbograph, madam? Well, of course. Isn't that why we're here? It's in my bag. Mrs. Hornby set a large drawstring bag on the settee. She began digging in it, muttering to herself. With a sigh, she began unpacking it, one item after another. Aha, here it is. She held up a small, bound book with the word thumbograph emblazoned in gold. The detective wanted to keep it, but I insisted he return my property. Would have destroyed the thing. A child's toy is all it is, but he cautioned me strongly against it. He insinuated I would be arrested. Can you imagine that? Arrested for destroying one's own property. Tis my business what I do with it, and it hasn't done anything but cause grief for poor Reuben. I may still do it. Miss Gibson took the book from Mrs. Hornsby and handed it to Thorndyke as Mrs. Hornsby prattled on, one topic spilling into the next. Are you going to photograph it? If I'd known that, we would have asked Walter to do it. He's an excellent photographer. He's at his own chemicals and everything. I think we could have had a nice career as a photographer, but it wouldn't have been to his liking. The wages are not the same as a businessman. Reuben, now he would have been happy on an artist's salary, but of course, he has no artistic talent. Such is the curse of men of science. Miss Gibson managed Miss Hornsby as a conductor did his orchestra, never interrupting her, but moving her in the direction she wanted. It was to the backdrop of Mrs. Hornsby's ever-changing tale that Poulton photographed the page with Reuben Hornsby's thumbprint. Okay, let's stop. That was a lot of very important information that I know. I know, because I've done like 40 of these now. <laughs> yes, I know that was a lot of... Oh, it's just, you know, a side comment. No, that proves something right there. I don't know what, because I fell asleep, but. So you, you think that the, the prattling on woman has more information than she knows she has? Reuben would have been happy as an artist. Yes. Yes, yes. But Walter, Walter, good old Walty boy. Would not have been. He would not have because of the money. Yes. Because of the and the lack thereof. But he's excellent photographer. He is. Interesting. The plot Interesting. thickens. Just like the viscosity of that blood. Chapter 6. The Thin Line. 
The next day, I joined, joined Thorndike and Poulton in the laboratory with a ridiculous number of photos of Reuben Hornsby's thumb. They came from the evidence photographed at Scotland Yard. Some came from the prints we made ourselves. Some came from Mrs. Hornsby's thumbograph. Some were normal size, others enlargements, others extreme enlargements. Thorndike inspected the images like a jeweler with his gems. There is no doubt, he said, that all of the prints are that of our client. The tented arch pattern is distinct in all of the prints. You expected that result, I said. You never believed it wasn't his. True Jervis, but beliefs are for churches. As men of legal medicine, we document, verify, and retest. There is something unusual. Do you see it? A thin, straight line ran from the top of the thumb to nearly the middle. It wasn't centered on the thumb, but slightly askew. At first I took it to be a scar, I said, but the line only exists on the evidence print. It might be explainable that it wasn't on the thumbograph, maybe the injury happened after, but it doesn't explain why it isn't on the prints we took. Thorndike nodded. Even if the line were caused by a scab instead of a scar, it would not have healed that quickly. I agree. I said. It was also odd that Reuben hadn't suffered any cuts that bled, and yet the blood was, and yet the print was made in blood. We both inspected his hands and his forearms. His face was easy enough to see. If he bled from someplace, someplace we couldn't see, how did the blood get out of the paper? You have an excellent mind for this type of work, Jervis. You are seeing exactly why the red thumbprint is not a smoking gun. In addition to blood being too thick for fingerprinting, as I mentioned before, it also dries quickly, making it a rare circumstance when an illegible print is made. I nodded in understanding. You said something about the blood being processed. That is my suspicion, Thorndike said. There are two methods that I know for treating blood that turn it into a fluid that is more common with ink than its original form. It is my hypothesis that the print is in evidence as a fraud. It is Reuben Hornsby's print, carefully made in a processed fluid and inserted in the surest place to implicate him. Poulton, the quiet man, left his lenses and cases. Yes, doctor? Thorndike tore a page from his notebook. I need you to make me 24 of these. The base is to be circular, you see? Poulton took the page, his craftsman's brain assessing the task. Yes, sir, and when do you need them by? A week should be fine, Thorndike said. When they're ready, I'll work with you on their preparation. The sketch on the page looked look like a rook from a chessboard. What are you going to do with them, I asked. A sly smile grew on his face. Wait and see. The next day, I attended the arraignment with Miss Juliet Gibson and the Hornby family. Juliet was distraught seeing Reuben in the docket. There was no missing the affection she had for the man, even as she clung to my hands. The Crown laid out their evidence. Reuben's advocate, who is not Lolly, but a man of Thorndite's selection, a man named Astley, withheld refuting the evidence. He was holding on to his ace until the trial. Reuben was remanded for trial, which was expected, but he was held without bail, which was not. The day after the arraignment, I escorted Juliet to the prison to visit Reuben. When Thorndike learned of the trip, he made a list of questions. A cab took us to a part of London a lady like Juliet never saw. I had prepared her for the circumstances. How would we be on how we would be on one side of the room with the visitors on the other? 
let's try that again, how we would be on one side of the room with other visitors, and Reuben would be on the other with other prisoners. We would be separated by two rows of bars that created a sort of alley. It would be loud, and we would likely have to shout to be heard. Reuben was not happy Juliet had come, showing him to be a true gentleman. Juliet didn't care and vowed to stand by him. She was a remarkable woman. Reuben answered Thorndyke's questions, most of which conformed, confirmed information we had already collected. I was somewhat late returning to Thorndyke's home, where I was now keeping a room. Polton was a mess with nerves. Thorndyke was late. Thorndyke was never late. At first, I dismissed his concerns with a series of reasonable explanations. But as evening set in, I set out looking for my friend. The second time I returned, just as a cab pulled up, a battered John Thorndyke descended very gently. What in the world happened to you? I shouted, taking his arm. Easy, he said. I was run over by a wagon. I tripped over another man's leg and went into the street. I signaled to Polton, who'd come to the door. What an unfortunate day. Actually, it was a very lucky day, he said. Another few inches and I wouldn't be here. Chapter 7, A Campaign on Thorndike. The incident that put Thorndike in the street might have been written off to bad luck, but two other incidents made it clear that someone preferred John Thorndike was no longer alive. The second incident took place a few days after Reuben Hornsby's arraignment. I had accompanied Thorndike to a morgue to have a look at a woman who was suspected of killing herself. We caught the last train home, arriving at our station just after midnight. Be people were still out on the street. A fancy bike was parked near the station, standing out as no others were about. It wasn't until we made a few turns off the main street that we were more or less alone. A gang of young men walked on the opposite side of the street. We kept our distance, wanting no trouble after a long day. That's when it happened. The zip of a bee buzzed Thorndyke's head when there wasn't an insect in the air. A window broke. We ran toward it, a figure on a bicycle racing away. We met the angry homeowner on his front walk. The man allowed us entry where we inspected the window and the room. Thorndyke found the bullet buried in the wall. He pocketed it before the homeowner saw, before the constable arrived. This is an unusual bullet, Thorndyke said the next day, rolling the slug between his fingers as he studied it. It wasn't fired from a gun. It was pushed, like by air. Air, water, gunpowder, I said. What does it matter? It came an inch from killing you, again. Stop looking so damn fascinated. This wasn't random, Jervis. So why me? Why now? I have turned it over many times and I keep coming back to Reuben Hornsby's case. It is the only thing that I'm working on that could be considered controversial. There is only one reason to kill me, to stop me from revealing some information. I took the offensive piece of metal from his hand. What information is worth killing you over? I don't know, he admitted. But if the killer is willing to go to such lengths, he or she thinks I have something that will point to their identity and guilt. As the date of the trial approached, Thorndyke locked himself in his laboratory, keeping out even Poulton. It was a selfish act, denying access to his faithful servant. Poulton did little but worry about his employer. The day before the trial, a gift arrived for Thorndyke. Rather than receive it graciously, Thorndyke shoved it away as if it would bite him. It did not come from a cigar shop, Jervis. Look at that wrapping and the label. Have you ever seen so many mistakes? The typewritten tag, because if you remember the typewriter had been invented, did have many mistakes. 
This was long before the days of whiteout or digital printing, and so mistakes were unerasable. Thorndike put on gloves and glasses and began opening the innocent-looking package. Beneath the wrapping was a box of the chair roots that Thorndike smoked. Instead of lighting one, he pulled it apart. This is ingenious, Thorndike said with admiration in his voice. Certainly this is poison. It's liquid here, but I will bet you it vaporizes quickly. I'll need to run some tests. The day of the trial finally arrived. Thorndike and Poulton spent more than an hour packaging their boxes and tricks. The doorbell rung and Poulton escorted in a man who looked like he belonged in a boxing ring. Thorndike shook his hand emphatically. Inspector, thank you for coming. I appreciate you indulging me. Think nothing of it, he said, but I'd like to know more about what I'm looking for. I expect the person who's tried to kill me will break into the house today. He believes there is something here that will hang him. The inspector's eyes shined. Is there? Thorndike shrugged. Doesn't matter one way or the other, just that he believes it. We're going to have to get going now. We three met Lolly and the Hornby family at their home. Thorndike took possession of the thumbograph and went ahead with Poulton, their camera cases, and the box of the custom-made rooks. Travel arrangements were made. Lolly, Mr. Hornby, and Walter traveled together. I escorted the ladies. Oh dear, Mrs. Hornby began. I'm so worried about Reuben, and what if my testimony makes it worse? What if it makes it better, Juliet said. You know he didn't do it. You're right, my dear. I'm just so afraid I'm going to forget the answers. Judges and solicitors become very cross when you don't remember the answers. She dug into her purse. Where is it? Juliet raised an eyebrow in silent question to me. Where is what, Mrs. Hornsby? The answers, she said, still digging. Walter was good enough as to type out the questions I'm going to be asked and the answers. Ah, here we are. Her lips moved as she read silently. Juliet moved to peer over her shoulder. Well, that isn't right, she said. Where did you acquire the thumbograph? It says you bought it in a small shop in Brighton. Mrs. Hornsby nodded. When we were on holiday. Pardon me, I said, but when we first met, I was told it was you were given it as a gift. Her face brightened. That's right, yes. Walter gave it to me when we had a house party. May I see the notes? Once received, I studied the page. The typing was far from expert. I noticed that there was a flaw in the letter E that was repeated throughout didn't remember if the cigar, cigar tag had the same flaw, but that would be easy enough to check. In my experience, Mrs. Hornsby, the court wants to know what you remember. It doesn't want a curated response. My advice is to be yourself. Tell them what you know. If you don't remember, then say so. Juliet put her hands on the older woman's shoulders. That is excellent advice, Mrs. Hornsby. Be yourself. Mrs. Hornsby looked hesitant, but gave in under our united front. If you think that's the right thing to do, that's what I'll do. All right, Jack. This is the chance where our audience and you... It's Walter. That's all you have to say. It's Walter. (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. He handed them notes with false information on it. Like, you don't even need to read the rest of the book or the story. Okay, so assuming you're right and it's Walter, don't you want to know how Thorndike catches him? Or at least gets Reuben out of trouble? Well, yeah, I'm just saying, like, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding me. 
Yes, this was one where the mystery itself is pretty simplistic. It's it, it meshes in a little bit more of I think what they call a, a reverse mystery, where you you the reader know who does it, and the fun of reading is really watching the detective catch the bad guy. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> There is a huge fly in here. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a problem. It'll freeze tomorrow and it'll go back to where it belongs. In hell. All right, let's go. Okay, before we get to know if indeed it was Walter, um, I want you to invite you all to sign up for our newsletter on the Prowl. Get it? Our last name is Wolf, so we prowl. It comes out with most full moons, and it contains short articles on the things I've learned in my research, previews of upcoming podcasts, and I usually include a puzzle or two of my own. Sign up with the link in the show notes or on my website, tgwolf.com. Now, as we get ready for the trial, I do want to point mystery lovers to my publisher, Down and Out Books. They like to live at the grittier end of the spectrum. No cozies here. Down and Out publishes my Diamond and De La Cruz books, including number three, Raising Stakes, which comes out February 14th. All right, let's see what Thorndike can do with uh, all this little deviation. We are ready for Chapter 8, The Witnesses for the Prosecution. If you heard a loud smacking noise, that was me assaulting the fly. The courtroom was more crowded than I expected for a robbery case. I was glad to have arrived early with the ladies as the benches filled in and shoulders were pressed against shoulders. I recognized few faces beyond Hornsby and their attorney, Lolly. One face that did stick out was the same unintroduced inspector who had come to Thorndyke's house. He sat on the aisle near the back, almost blending into the crowd, but not quite. Juliet gasped and the crowd grew to a low murmur as Reuben Hornby appeared in the docket. He wore the same clothes as when he was arrested, dirtier and wrinkled, but that described the whole appearance. He was barely recognizable as the man who I first met that evening in Thorndike's library. The judge entered and the proceedings promptly began. The crown prosecutor, in his robes and powdered wig, laid out in terms as certain as if they were written in stone how Reuben Hornby had betrayed his uncle and his family by sealing the valuable diamonds. Juliet squeezed my hand, tears in her eyes. We were expecting this, I reminded her. The whole of their case rests on the bloody thumb mark. Without that, they have nothing. She firmed her lips and nodded. He just sounds so certain. Were I on the jury, I would believe him. Mr. Hornsby was called to the witness stand. The prosecution asked him a series of questions that confirmed the facts I've already shared with you. The defense asked if Mr. Hornby thought Reuben was responsible. Absolutely not, he said. Reuben has been my trusted lieutenant with his cousin Walter. He has been with me since he was a boy. Reuben is incapable of this crime, both in his heart and in his mind. The investigating police were called. Their stories began with the opening of the safe and the thumbprint. The defense offered nothing here, acknowledging the truth. Mrs. Hornby was called. Poor dear was a nervous wreck. The prosecutor eased his tone, but was no less direct. She answered even the simplest questions when 20 words when one would have done. Is this your thumbograph? The prosecutor asked. Of course the thumbograph is mine. I was the one who brought it here, wasn't I? Except I did give it to Mr. Thorn- Dr. Thorndike to bring. He is such a lovely gentleman, she said. Does it contain the thumbprint of Reuben Hornsby? The prosecutor said. 
Why, it includes thumbprints of my entire family, she said, and dear friends. The Duke and Duchess of Winter are in here. So is Mrs. Viola Castlewhite. She may not be nobility, but she makes the most noble tarts in London. The audience chuckled. The judge glared. We will accept that as a yes, the prosecutor said. Where and when did you happen to come by the thumbograph? Mrs. Hornsby brought her fingers to her lips. I bought it when I was on holiday. No, that isn't right. Maybe I was given it? Walter brought it back from a trip. She hesitated, looked at the judge, and became smaller in her chair. I had a page with the answers. The answers, the judge repeated. Do you not know the answers yourself? She leaned toward a judge in a type of stage whisper. Well, I thought Walter gave it to me as a gift, but he said he didn't. I don't always remember things exactly right, and Walter does. Tell me what you remember, the judge said encouragingly. We were having guests for several nights, and it wasn't going well. My husband, Mr. Hornby, knew the husband quite well in business. His wife had no love for London and seemed to have absolutely no interest at all. Walter saved a very long evening by presenting me with the thumbograph. He taught us all to make the prints and then how to look at them. It made for a wonderful evening. After Mrs. Hornsby came the experts from Scotland Yard, who with the combination of brevity and detail, testified that the thumbprint on the page matched the print in the thumbograph, which matched the print taken of the accused once he was arrested. I put my arm around Juliet. She trembled with the certainty of testimony. Be brave, I said. It's Thorndike's turn. Chapter 9, Thorndike's Turn. Thorndike took the stand. I hadn't realized until the moment how much of a presence he had. As I said, he was an excellent-looking man in his prime and carried himself with authority and confidence of both an expert and a gentleman. This time, our attorney led the questions. It began with Thorndike's pedigree and experience in legal medical matters and wound around to the real question. This trial comes down to one single piece of evidence, the red thumb mark. Have you examined it? Yes, said Thorndike. I have photographed it myself, blowing it up for inspection. I did the same with the thumbograph and the prints that I myself took of Mr. Hornby. The attorney nodded. Then do you agree that the print found in the safe was that of the accused? I do, he said, and the courtroom gasped. But it is my contention that he did not make it. It is a fraud. Now the courtroom buzzed. Juliet turned to me, hope shining through her tears as the judge called for order. How could such a thing be done, the attorney continued, and pass the expert eyes of Scotland Yard? Thorndike described the process as he previously did. Again, the audience hummed and buzzed with excitement. Again, the judge regained control. I have come prepared to do a demonstration, Thorndike said to the judge, to prove without a doubt that thumbprints can be counterfeited to such a degree that the excellent gentleman of Scotland Yard can be fooled. To my astonishment, the judge agreed. The two experts from Scotland Yard left the courtroom. Poulton moved to Thorndike's side with his box of tricks. Under the witness of the attorneys, the judge, and the jury, albeit they were farther away, Thorndike began. He asked for a page from the judge's notebook and took a quill to it. He he held it up and said, This sheet of paper has been divided into 24 numbered squares. On 12 will be original prints for Mr. Hornby. On the other 12 will be counterfeits made from the photograph of the thumbograph. Reuben was led down from the docket. Thorndike prepared ink on a tablet and made 12 impressions of Reuben's thumb. 
The result was inspected by the judge, the attorneys, and the jury. Thorndike then pulled 12 of Poulton's rook-like creations from the box. With all eyes on him, he repeated the procedure of inking the tablet, rolling the stamp over the ink in the same manner he had done with Reuben's thumb, and made an impression on the paper. 12 stamps, 12 thumb marks. The finished page was again circulated for inspection. I have made note of the original print numbers, the judge said. Bailiff, bring the inspectors back in. Well, the crowd could not stay silent as the experts inspected the pages. They did not confer, offering separate opinions. Juliet slid closer to me, and I held her. I felt a twinge of guilt at holding another man's woman, but I found I couldn't help it. The connection between Juliet and Reuben was too obvious to ignore, yet if she were free, I would have been on my knees. After what seemed like an eternity but was actually less than half an hour, the inspectors indicated their readiness. The first listed the numbers of those he identified as fakes. The judge made note. The second concurred, with one exception. Then all eyes were on the judge, who looked flummoxed. This is most unexpected, gentlemen. If I had not witnessed the entire procedure with my own eyes, I would have thought the result was impossible. You are wrong, sirs, on every count except one. Thorndike smiled, small but satisfied. Reuben sagged in the docket. Mr. Hornsby grabbed Mrs. Hornby. Juliet pulled me to her similarly. Walter said a word to his aunt and uncle, and then he hurried up the aisle. The unnamed inspector followed him. The trial ended quickly after that, and as the jury was sent to do its duty. The judge returned to his chambers, but the courtroom didn't clear. No one wanted to lose their seat. A long hour later, the judge re-entered, and the jury was brought back in. That was so fast, Juliet said. Is that good or bad? We're about to find out, I said, as the judge banged his gavel. Mr. Foreman, what say the jury? A thin man with an ill-fitting suit rose. We, the jury, find the accused not guilty. Juliet folded into my lap. I can hear Mrs. Hornsby sob with relief. Thorndike shook hands with the men who, this time were his enemy, but more often were friends. Then he came to us. Excellent work, Jervis. Couldn't have done it without you. I accepted the offered hand. I sincerely doubt that, but will accept your compliments. Thank you, Dr. Thorndike, Juliet said, taking his hand out of mine. You saved a very good man, but it does leave the question of who did steal the diamonds. Thorndike covered her hand with his. I believe that answer will reveal itself shortly. Being the masochist that I am, I offered to walk Juliet home. Drawing out our final goodbye certainly could not have been a healthy decision for my heart. She was, of course, happy and free as a bird, where I, with every step, felt like I was going to my grave. Why so down, she asked. You and your talented Dr. Thorndike saved Reuben when it looked impossible. Yes, I said, it, it did look impossible. <gasps> you will ha both have to come to the wedding, she said. You will be guests of honor, as it wouldn't have happened without you. I doubt my heart could take watching her take vows with another man. You will have to meet Victoria, she prattled. She is so sweet, and she has been twice the bundle of nerves I've been. Victoria, I asked. Reuben's fiancée, she explained. That's where he was the night of the robbery, proposing to her. After the blame fell on him, he ordered everyone to be silent. He couldn't have that shadow fall on her. It was killing her not to be at the trial. It was as if the clouds parted and the sun shone down only on the two of us. I went down on my knee and did the most impetuously rational act of my life. All right, we're ready for the aftermath. 
<laughs> that man just proposed. He did just propose. So you were right about Walter. I'm in dino jammies. Sorry, what? I forgot I said that out loud. So, what? What? You were right about Walter. Uh, how? Wait, when did it say that I was right? Well, okay, you're right that it didn't say it was right, but Walter left the room and the inspector followed him. Oh, I wasn't paying that much attention. I didn't know he left. Anyway. <laughs> so let's say, does this logic work? So we'll play it in reverse. Walter, who was likely arrested within an hour of his cousin's release, knows the details of the shipments of the diamonds. You have to remember that this is old school, right? So those diamonds are coming on a ship, which means the plans for their receipt were made long, long, long in advance. So Walter has plenty of lead time. Next time his uncle goes into town, he offers to take responsibility for the safe. And, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. He's got a copy of the key. If stealing the diamonds were his only goal, he could have stopped here. And suspicion would have fallen on his uncle. The decision to add the thumb mark meant that Walter was after more than money. He was essentially pulling a cane and an Abel and trying to take out the competition. So Walter knows that Ruben's thumbprint is in the thumbograph, and he easily takes the book from his aunt's room, photographs the thumb, then returns it, and he makes a stamp just like Thorndike did. He can't use ink because it wouldn't make any sense that an ink print would appear on a pre-existing sheet of paper, so he uses blood. But those test prints don't go well, right? Luckily, Walter has the skills to process the blood, and the result makes a perfect print. So that light, Walter's alone in his office, just like he usually is. He opens the safe, yada, yada, yada. He didn't notice, though, that there was a hair on the paper, which leaves a clean line in the print. So he locks the safe and goes about his evening and waits for the call the next morning. And Walter's thinking, so far, so good. Here's the part where I start to struggle. Why does Walter think Thorndike knows what he did and believes with such conviction that Thorndike has evidence against him that he tries to kill Thorndike three times? You know, Thorndike's assuming he has some evidence that will point to the real thief, but he doesn't know what it is. And we all know, looking back, he, he doesn't. All he knows is that, I guess it'd be more, more considered circumstantial evidence. He doesn't have a witness watching Walter walk in. He doesn't have you know, something of Walter's DNA. So it's, it's a lot of speculation. So I guess all in all, I thought that was, it added a thriller element to the story, but the action and strategy didn't seem to be on that same level as the mystery itself. As for Christopher Jervis's obsession with Juliet Gibson, I did not create that. It was in the original story and I just left that in there for fun. So there we go, Jack. That wraps up another episode of Mysteries to Die For. Dear listeners, support our show by subscribing, telling another mystery lover about us. It'd be great to get our numbers up a little higher, giving us a five-star review. You certainly could support us by becoming a member of our Body Bag Brigade with financial support for the season. Pay what you can. Information is in the show notes and on our website, tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution from Jack Wolf. Thorndike and the Red Thumb Mark was adapted from the Red Thumbmark Thumb Mark by R. Austin Freeman. Music and production are by Jack Wolf, and episode art is by T.G. Wolf. Join us again in two weeks for episode nine. It's going to be another good one. All right, Jack, the floor is yours. Take us out. Mm-hmm.